Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also excited to grow the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardio nerds. We are establishing the cardio nerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as cardio nerds fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. And now without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing cardio nerds colleagues. Cardiners, welcome back to another awesome case discussion. We are so privileged to be joined by colleagues and fellows from Baylor Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. We are excited to have on with us Drs. Kurum Khan, John Safradini, and Aliza Hussein. Guys, welcome to the show. So excited to learn from you. Would you mind introducing yourselves? Hi, everyone. I'm Kurum. I'm really excited to be on the show with you. I grew up in Houston. I've been in Houston since I was four years old. And now I've pretty much been here forever. I wanted to stay for medical school. So I was at Baylor. And then I was at Baylor College of Medicine for residency. And I'm here for fellowship now. I'm interested in doing EP when I finish general cardiology. All right. Thank you guys so much for inviting us on. I'm John. I also grew up in Houston, Texas. I went to University of Texas for undergrad and then actually have moved around the country. I went to Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine in Atlanta for med school and then up to University of Kentucky for internal medicine residency and now have returned back home to Houston, Texas for a cardiology fellowship. I am interested in doing interventional cardiology. Hi, everyone. I'm Aliza. Thank you for having me here. I'm originally from Pakistan, and that's where most of my family is. I grew up there and spent some years in India as well. I did my medical school in Karachi from Aga Khan University and then moved for residency to a UPMC in Pittsburgh. I last year moved to Houston to do a year in preventative cardiology as part of a four-year track. And now in July, I transitioned to the General Cardiology Fellowship here at Baylor. I'm interested in doing prevention, maybe imaging, and my research interests are to do with cardiac biomarkers, some restratification, and a bit of lipidology. Wow. Koram, John, Aliza, thank you so much for joining the show. And we are so excited to be here in Houston on such a beautiful, sunny day. Can you guys take us to your favorite chill spot so we could talk about some serious cardiology? Amit and I are just so excited to be here. All right. We're so glad that you guys are joining us. So we are going to Hugo's for brunch. 
It's one of the many restaurants that's participating in Houston Restaurant Week. So let me tell you a little bit about both real quick. So Hugo's is an upscale Mexican restaurant. It's the flagship restaurant of Chef Hugo Ortega. It's been around for nearly two decades, and it features imaginative and really fantastic meat and seafood entrees with a festive ambiance. Really enjoy going here with my co-fellows. And Houston Restaurant Weeks really is one of the best times of the year. It's an annual month-long dining extravaganza. It's the largest annual fundraiser for the Houston Food Bank. It's an exciting month. It offers special menus for brunch, lunch, and dinner to many of the fine dining restaurants in Houston. So if you're a foodie, you're going to absolutely love Houston Restaurant Weeks as it gives you the option to really explore some new restaurants and go around town and check these places out. Guys, cardio nerds are many things. Educators, cardiologists, nerds. But being a foodie is definitely chief among them. So thank you for taking us to this awesome place. What better way to spend a Sunday? Let's get to talking about a great case. What do you guys have for us? Yeah, so let me tell you all about a great case that I saw recently when I was in the CCU. A man in his mid-40s with a history of vaping came in with chest pain. He was recently seen by pulmonary for shortness of breath, chest tightness, wheezing, and he was diagnosed with E-Valley. E-Valley. What the heck is that? It sounds kind of nice. Oh, so I've recently heard about E-Valley. E-Valley is an e-cigarette or vaping product associated lung injury. It's also known as vaping-associated pulmonary injury. It presents as a spectrum of different illnesses, all the way from fibrinous pneumonitis to diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, sometimes organizing pneumonia. And it actually gained prominence back in 2019 of last year when Wisconsin reported a couple of cases to the CDC, their first cluster of lung injuries. And since then, actually, it has broken out into multiple states. What's interesting about it is that it usually affects younger people. So 80% of the lung injuries have been seen in people less than 35. And it has a male predominance. Mahmoud, actually one of the co-fellows here, second year at Baylor, published a study that showed that one in 20 young adults are actually using some sort of vaping or e-cigarette use. And the use is increasing from 2016 to 2018. He published that from data using the behavioral risk factor surveillance system. So I suspect that this would be more and more common in our practice now to see something like this. Yeah, it was really cool. Actually, I hadn't heard much about E-Valley until I saw this case, and it was great to read more about it. And so patient was started on a steroid taper for E-Valley. And during that initial evaluation, he also had a nuclear stress test, which was ordered and done, and it was negative for any areas of ischemia. His chest pain when he came in had been going on for a few hours. It was waxing and waning, but it was persistent. He wasn't really sure what makes it better or worse, and it wasn't affected by breathing. It wasn't associated with shortness of breath, fevers, chills, vomiting, or abdominal pain. He had never had anything like this before. Did he have any medical problems? Actually, can I ask along the history? So I'm glad you guys are educating us about this condition. I didn't know too much about E-Valley in the past, but it sounds like some sort of a toxic parenchymal lung injury related to vaping. Could chest pain and dyspnea not just be residual consequences of E-Valley? What's raising our alarm bells to further evaluate this? Yeah, the patient himself felt like the chest pain was very severe compared to anything he had in the past. And so he was really concerned and came into the ER. Yeah, and I think E-Valley has more of pulmonary shortness of breath, cough, those kind of symptoms. Chest pain is like a component of it, but like this guy has predominant chest pain, not shortness of breath. So, you know, you have to still rule out the other stuff. 
Yeah, no, that's very helpful. You know, chest pain has such a broad differential diagnosis. And, you know, I think it just highlights the importance of listening to our patient. If he says, look, like I, maybe I had some chest discomfort before, but this is totally different. That itself is more than enough to dive into a differential diagnosis and further evaluation. Thank you. This may or may not be classified as substance abuse, but especially patients that are involved with substance abuse, sometimes they come with actual problems that are not related to the substance abuse. And so it's incredibly important to listen to the patients and kind of tease out, is this a new thing, a new phenomenon? Are they reaching out about another issue that's ongoing besides things that may be linked to their polysubstance abuse? So just a great example of listening to the patient. Love it. Chrome, did the patient have any other major medical history? No, really. He just had this history of asthma and e-valley. And so he only used some inhalers, albuterol, simbacord, and ipratropium. He also doesn't have any family history of cardiac disease. How long had he been vaping for? So he had been smoking since his teenage years, but then within around the last one year, he changed over exclusively to vaping. He thinks it's easier, and he said it was more socially acceptable for him. He said he doesn't use any other drugs and just uses social alcohol. What did he look like on presentation for him? When he came in and I saw him, he was afebrile. He was tachycardic to the 130s, normotensive, and he was breathing normally. His exam was notable for a man being in mild distress due to chest discomfort, regular tachycardia, and scattered wheezes on his exam. What did his EKG look like? So, yeah, here, I have an EKG picture on my phone if you want to take a look at it. Yeah, it looks like there's anterior ST elevations as well as deep Q waves across the anterior leads. Yeah, and he had an old EKG as well. These are new in comparison to the prior. Yeah, so what do you guys want to do at this point? What would you have done? So I had a 40-year-old male who's having some chest pain and I have some SD elevations on an EKG. I'd activate the cath lab. I'd get the STEMI pager going. All right, perfect. So that's pretty much what happened. STEMI was paged. So in the meantime, his lab started to come back. And notably, he had normal kidney function. His AST and ALT were elevated into the 100s. His white blood cell count was 22. And his fourth-generation troponin assay came back as 14 with a BNP of 493. Yeah, I think that troponin particularly probably confirms our suspicion that the patient is having acute coronary syndrome. Also, the white count is not infrequently seen when patients have a large territory ST elevation MI. And then mild elevation of the LFTs and BNP probably reflects that the patient is somewhat volume overloaded. All right. So we took him to the cath lab, and then I have a brief video of what we saw when he went in there. So looking at this cath film, it looks like there is a proximal LED 100% occlusion, whereas the non-culprit vessels don't seem to have any significant obstructive disease. Here's the beautiful result we had after intervention. I also have a picture of his right-sided anatomy as well. It doesn't appear to be any obstructive disease on the, the right side. Yeah, so it's interesting how his nuclear was negative, which was only done a month ago. You know, we usually get a nuclear stress test, and it's an excellent non-invasive means of identifying flow-limiting coronary stenosis. But we have to remember that the sensitivity of both exercise or vasodilatory nuclear stress spec, for example, averages 87-89%. And what's more important to remember in this case is, you know, a normal nuclear stress test does not translate into zero cardiovascular events. In fact, even with a normal stress test, there's like a 03 to 0.5% of having an annual event rate of cardiac death or non-fatal MI. And it's not surprising because if you think about it, a nuclear stress test basically rules out 
stenosis that are greater than 50%, but most of your plaque ruptures occur in mildly stenotic atherosclerotic plaque, which is less than 50%. So that's sort of what happened in our case, I guess. You know, his nuclear stress test was negative, but he did eventually have a plaque rupture. I wonder if there's any link to this vaping and evaluate. You know, I don't know what the significance of that is and maybe related to inflammation. You know, in multiple cases of Evali, they've noticed that patients have high markers of coagulation, such as INR, and inflammation like ESR, CRP, procalcitonin, and e-cigarette or vaping also increase the sympathetic nerve activity, platelet homeostatic function, reactive oxygen species, there's endothelial dysfunction, arterial stiffness, all the things that you see in, you know, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So, you know, I'm just wondering here if there's any link at all. Those are some great points, Aliza. I think specifically regarding the nuclear stress test and how it might be almost easy to fall into the trap of thinking that, oh, well, you know, a patient just had a normal nuclear stress test. If they're coming in with chest pain, you know, it's probably not ACS. But like you said, you, you still have to evaluate the patient and take the full clinical picture into consideration. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, guys, again, this is such a critical, critical point. I'm just going to re-say it. When you're dealing with a patient and risk stratifying for obstructive disease that's chronic and even sometimes acute, a nuclear stress test can be helpful. But if your lesion was not there to be obstructive at the time of the stress test, it's not going to show up on a nuclear stress test. And when somebody comes in with a new presentation that has developed after that said stress test, that stress test does not provide you with evidence about whether or not this is an acute coronary event. And this is basically what it comes down to. It comes down to the story and some baseline risk factors, obviously confirmed with what you find in ECG, which in this case was a STEMI. But I totally agree with you guys. This is like a very important point to make. And so patient tolerated the procedure well, and then he was in the CCU. And so then we got an echo. And so these are the echo videos that we got. You can see here that the apical anterior and anteroceptal segments are down, which goes along with the area of his disease, which was the LAD on the cat. Some other things that, you know, you'd want to sort of rule out in this situation when such a large area of the anterior wall is involved is, and we've used contrast for that, is if there is an LV thrombus there because that would change management. Other things to rule out would be some of the mechanical complications associated with anterior wall MIs, like a VSD, and also what the ejection fraction or what the systolic function is, because that changes management, what medications I send them home on. So you can see that there's some apical anterior and anteroceptal segments that are involved, which go with the area of the disease on his cat, which is the LAD. So I couldn't agree more. You know, the post-STEMI echo provides such a wealth of information. But I just want to get back to, you know, why this patient had a STEMI to begin with. This is a 45-year-old man. His past medical history in terms of risk factors is asthma, family history. There's no history of cardiovascular disease. Really, it's a social history of smoking. Uh, you know, I don't know what the biometrics were, but there was no medical history of obesity or diabetes or hypertension. The classic risk factors were absent, right? And so you think, as a mid-40s man, why did he suffer from such a massive proxality ST elevation MI? And so it's hard to tell just looking at these coronary angiography images. One thing we can consider is the causes for coronary obstruction. Is it SCAD? Is it vasospasm? Is it thrombus, which may or may not be embolic? Is it atherosclerosis with a plaque rupture or a plaque erosion? So in this situation, there's like almost an abrupt cutoff. And so one thing I'd wonder about is, was there actually underlying plaque? Or was this a sort of an embolic coronary occlusion? One thing is just looking at the rest of the images, 
all the other coronary tree looks like it was pretty devoid of luminal irregularities. So this is not somebody who has prolific plaque everywhere. So that's one consideration. The second consideration is I just don't know that much about the cardiovascular effects of e-cigarettes or vaping. And I imagine, you know, beyond the, the known correlation with arrhythmias, there really isn't that much known about it at all. But could that have been a predisposing factor in some way? Right. We just don't have enough data with vaping. I mean, there's some cross-sectional studies that show some association, but again, there's no temporality, there's no causality that's been established yet. And also, we don't know if they're prothrombotic. You know, we certainly don't have enough information with E-Valley because it's just case series at, at this point. But it'd be interesting to sort of follow along and see over the years what kind of cases we see, you know, cardiovascular complications from this syndrome. Yeah, and this is why I wanted to talk about this case with you guys, because it was really interesting to me for all of the reasons that, that were just mentioned that, hey, you know, this guy just came and had this significant event. And so it's going to be really interesting, I think, to see as we get more data on people that have been vaping and any kind of cardiovascular events that they have. It will be great to see what kind of data and what linkages are discovered as we get more points of information going forward. And even though the data is not definitive, the three or four cross-sectional studies that have looked at e-vaping in the connection to ACS have found a correlation, although you know that doesn't prove causation, but there is a correlation between vaping and ACS events. Yeah, these are all great points. And, you know, certainly there is a lot to learn about the links between vaping and cardiovascular disease. But also to not anchor us here, there may be other things to consider as well in putting him together downstream of this in terms of preventing future disease, improving future outcomes, and maybe even relevance to children and other first-degree relatives. Is, is there a genetic predisposition? Is there an elevated LP little a or some other lipid disorder that could predispose this patient in some way, shape, or form? And also, you know, we learned from other cases across the series, we've seen acute coronary syndrome from arteritis, right, from microscopic polyangiitis. So there's also like inflammatory disorders. And then you think, just think about the pathobiology of clots, you know, either the clot formed there because there was a plaque or it formed there because there's a hypercoagulability disorder or an inflammatory disorder, or it got there from somewhere else like an embolus. So I think this is such an interesting case that we come across all the time with relatively young people having coronary disease. And it behooves us to, in the outpatient setting, to figure out what the predispositions were so we can derail that trajectory moving forward. So now, did you guys want to talk about the post-STEMI care? And so otherwise, he was doing well hemodynamically. There was no concern about cardiogenic shock or acute heart failure. So he was able to tolerate the addition of a beta blocker early on. We put him on metoprolol and then ACE inhibitor. And additionally, he was on high-intensity statin. And so we had him on pretty much all of the essential medications for post-STEMI. The patient, he did really well following the procedure. He recovered and then he was discharged without complication. All right, guys. Thanks for walking us through that. Another life saved. And hopefully he'll be bridged over to some sort of prevention clinic that can kind of start understanding what his true predispositions were, vaping or no vaping, and get him on a track for improving his health, integrated with cardiac rehab and multidisciplinary preventive efforts. So I'd love to hear at this point what you guys love about cardiology and what makes your heart splutter about training at Baylor. Yeah, so I can start since I'm the first year and I just recently joined. I joined Baylor. I moved from Pittsburgh to Baylor, mostly initially for the city. I think it's a very diverse city. I moved from Pakistan, so I wanted to sort of have a place where there were, you know, there was a representation of all kinds of different races, ethnicities, and all kind of multicultural food, restaurants. 
like Houston has all of that. And then Baylor itself is a very multicultural sort of community as well. And then I love the friendly environment of the fellowship. I think we have all the super fellowships that if anyone wants to do interventional EP, we also have imaging. And then the research drew me as well. I wanted to do preventative cardiology. I did a fellowship in that starting off and then did some of my research with Dr. Valentine, Dr. Birani for some of the you know leading people in prevention right now. So that was sort of why I came to Baylor. I agree with all that. I think Baylor is a fantastic program for, for so many different reasons. But I would say the number one reason that brought me here was when I went to interview here and I interacted with the fellows. They seemed incredibly friendly, incredibly just entertaining and fun to be around. And I felt like this was a place that was a supportive environment. And since being here over the last year, I think that's all held true, both in how friendly the fellows are, how much of a friendly environment that it's great to train under, and our relationship with the attendings as well. Actually true. I should mention that as well. Me and John are on Echo together, and last week was a blast. (laughs) Yeah, guys. So I I don't really understand why anybody in medicine wants to do anything aside from cardiology. The, you know, <laughs> we, no, we love we love everybody too you know we need our infectious disease experts to you know help us with endocarditis and our rheumatologists to help us with microscopic polyangiitis presenting as a you know led but yeah I, i'm with you off the record yeah I, I i love you know i really understand the physiology in cardiology i love that cardiology has a robust evidence base for what we do And really, it's a field that embraces new technology and innovation. And that's one of my passions. And so I really like that about cardiology is that there's new devices, new technology, and all of that constantly coming out. So it's exciting to be a part of that. And so why specifically did I choose to be at Baylor? So I've been at Baylor for a long time now. When I finished General Cardiology Fellowship, I will have been at Baylor for 10 years. So there's a reason that I wanted to stick around. And so just a couple of things in general. I love Houston. It's a great city that has everything you would want from a big city, but it's a little different in that there's a lot of space and you can drive around. And I like that part of it. Baylor is in the best medical center in the world, really the biggest medical center. There's a lot of institutions and other medical schools all around us and a lot of chance to network with different colleagues and leaders in their fields. And, you know, as you may have guessed, I'm a big foodie and Houston is, I would say, the best food city in the country. And let's argue about that on Twitter. So let me know if you think there's any place that's better. And so now... Do you really want to start a Twitter war? (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. All right, it's on. Yeah. And then finally, specifically why Baylor Cardiology, really just to echo on what Elisa and John mentioned is that the fellows are so friendly and really a a family environment, not only amongst the fellows, but also the attendings. Our faculty is, they're brilliant people, but they're also very welcoming, easy to work with, and they care about the fellows. And so I think that's one of the very important things when you're looking for a fellowship program that I really want to emphasize for Baylor Cardiology. And if you just meet our attendings and talk to them. They're so down to earth and easy to get along with. Maybe you wouldn't at first think that, hey, these people are actually some of the leaders of the field and they're on the guideline running committees, and yet they're willing to talk to you and help you out and talk you through a clinical scenario or help however they can. So I really like that about our program. John, Cora, Aliza, this has been such a tremendous opportunity to review some of the basics of STEMI in a patient with a past medical history that may have confused the picture, but obviously didn't. And we are just so excited to 
hang out with you today. I am literally stuffed to the gills from this amazing food. And I'm definitely not getting involved in your Twitter war. I, I refrain from a lot of Twitter challenges and stuff like that. But I just know that we had a great time today. And this was absolutely fabulous. Well, thank you guys for coming on down and visiting and chatting with us. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, guys. And now for the ECPR segment by Dr. Nambi. He's an associate professor here at Baylor, and he is part of our faculty, very involved in teaching us imaging, as well as sometimes in the CCU around with us. He was actually my fellowship program director for the preventative cardiology fellowship as well, and he's involved in preventative cardiology research. Here's Dr. Nambi. Thank you, Elisa, for your kind introduction, and uh, thank you, John, Kudam, and Elisa, for allowing me to discuss such an interesting case that you guys presented. I must say, listening to the discussion between you and the moderators, it was so nice and comprehensive that I wonder if I have too much to add. Really nice job on that, guys. I really enjoyed your discussion. Since you've asked me to discuss this, let me at least try to expand on what you guys have already touched upon and delve into maybe some of the finer details on this and try to come up with some interesting aspects, what I thought was interesting in this uh, case. So let me start off by first summarizing the patient that you presented. Putting it together, so we had a patient in his mid-40s who had a history of smoking and then recently converted to vaping and ended up with e-valley or the vaping-associated lung injury, which has been in the news quite a bit recently. Subsequent to that, he was treated for that with steroids and came back within a uh, few weeks or a month or so and had a, a ST elevation myocardial infarction for which he was taken and revascularized for that and uh, did well. I think looking at this, there are several aspects that deserve discussion or things that we should think about as we move forward in trying to inform our practice in the future. So I think if you look at it, there's the fact that this was a young person who had a myocardial infarction. Then the other fascinating thing was obviously that he was vaping and he had e-valley leading up to this. And the third final interesting aspect was the fact that he had a stress test, which was negative within a few weeks of him having a myocardial uh, infarction. So let's delve into each of these in a little bit more detail and try to understand or try to think about certain interesting aspects of this. The first thing we all get whenever there's a patient who is young who ends up with a myocardial infarction, we all sit and talk about it saying, hey, did you know what? We had this young person who came with the myocardial infarction. Now, that being said, don't forget that in this age group, the 40 to 55 or 35 to 55 years of age group, if you look statistically, heart disease tends to be the second or third leading cause of death. So while it is still uncommon, it is not impossible. And I think all of us recognize that. And that's why I think symptoms and respecting the symptoms becomes very important. So if you think about a person with a young myocardial infarction, then you want to think about what are the causes or what are things that could lead up to this. You guys had a wonderful discussion on potential causes in this patient. And I think we should expand on that and think about what percentage of people have risk factors, what are these risk factors. Now, when early 2000s, when I was a resident, some interesting data that came out, which looked at the number of risk factors, they just counted on smoking, diabetes, hypertension, and dyslipidemia among patients presenting with an acute coronary syndrome. The two interesting aspects, the first thing was that a good majority of the people had zero or one risk factors only. 
Okay, but if you took the younger individuals, about 80 to 85 percent at least had one risk factor present, and perhaps it was smoking that was the most common, but at least had one risk factor present, saying that it's the rare person, 10 to 15 percent of the people, that do not have some risk factor going in. Now, if you look at our own patient, he was a smoker, so coming in, he had that risk factor of uh, uh, being a smoker. Now, that being said, we have a lot of young people with these risk factors and not all of them develop a myocardial infarction. So clearly there are other things that contribute towards it. And this is where there has been a lot of area of interest about what are these things and what could be done in these individuals. So some of the fascinating work that has since come on are helping us understand what are other factors or risk enhancing factors as they're called. As the most recent ACCHA guidelines for both cholesterol management and prevention talk about these risk enhancers. And as you know, our program director, Dr. Salim Virani, has been very highly involved with this guideline and part of the guideline writing committee. And when they talk about these risk enhancers or things that you should think about, which are not factored in your 10-year risk estimation, but can become very important as far as potential modifiers or things that you have to think about when you're deciding on preventative strategies go. Now, if you look at younger individuals, there has been some very exciting work that's been coming out of our own program over here. Dhruv Mata, one of our first-year fellows, has been working with veterans with premature atherosclerosis or the vital registry, where they've been looking at factors that are associated with uh, coronary uh, artery disease or myocardial infarction. In fact, they have about 135,000 individuals with premature coronary artery disease, which they defined as men less than 55 years of age and women less than uh, 65 years of age. And they also have a sub-cohort of about almost 8,000 patients with extreme premature coronary artery disease or less than 40 years of age. And some interesting trends are starting to emerge from this, that things like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, tend to be higher in these individuals. And of course, there have been also data that suggests that substance abuse and alcohol use may be greater in the cohort of individuals also. Similarly, uh, Dr. Chia Kritanawong, one of our other cardiology fellows, has also worked on the national inpatient sample, which is uh, looking at inpatients admitted with myocardial infarction, and again noted that things like lupus have a higher prevalence in people coming with a young MI, and similarly smoking and substance abuse itself. Now, there are other data from NHANES, which we've been working on also, which again suggests these things, and these are all pointing towards these factors of risk enhancers. So these are some of the things that as we move forward, we have to identify what these modifiers are and look at these risk enhancers. And so this will be important. For example, in this patient, we perhaps should go back and look at what his history was as far as these risk enhancers go, or potentially did he have any feature suggestive of uh, autoimmune conditions? And this is something important to go back in history and ask. Now, there are also risk enhancers that are being identified in women, for example, preeclampsia, pregnancy-induced hypertension. So these are all important things that I think we should focus on as we move forward. Now, you guys talked about lipoprotein little a, and this is clearly one of those risk factors which uh, can be seen in premature coronary artery disease. And this is an important space at this point of time, because in the past, we've done work in the ADDIC study identifying this to be a risk factor and, uh, and associated with stroke, uh, cardiovascular disease, coronary heart disease. But now, as you heard in our uh, first annual Prevention Rules for Cardiometabolic Diseases uh, CME conference, we are starting to develop therapies to take care of elevated LP little a, including work that's going on right now at Baylor College of Medicine. And these are things that it's an interesting space as we look forward to. Now, before we move from there, I must congratulate our fellows who did such an outstanding job moderating the sessions. It was really uh, a remarkable job. Job well done, guys. So the next thing that we have to understand is 
once we've looked at all these potential risk factors, is just to take a step back and understand the pathophysiology of atherosclerosis, atherogenesis, and myocardial infarction itself goes. You all talked about plaque rupture as an inciting event, and that's an important aspect of it. Now, the thing is, don't forget, though, that atherosclerosis is a lifelong event, right? In other words, the early process of atherosclerosis has been identified even before the age of 10, where fatty streaks have been noted. By the age of 30, through intravascular ultrasound studies, we've noted that about 80% of men and the majority of women have some plaque development in the coronary arteries. Now, we've done some work with ultrasound of the carotids using carotid intermediate thickness and prevalence of plaque in predicting cardiovascular disease. And again, I can tell you the prevalence of atherosclerosis is so high that presence of the plaque tells you that the process is going on. Now, in fact, there's another study called the PESA study, which looked at age groups that are relevant to our patient and found that about 35% of the individuals age 40 to 44 and 48% of the individuals age 45 to 49 and 68% of the individuals age 50 to 54 had some plaque development either in the femorals or the carotid arteries. Now, think about this. The reason why this is important is that atherosclerosis is a lifelong event. It starts at a young age and it keeps marching along till it finally or eventually manifests at a later age. Now, when it manifests varies from person to person, and that's where these risk modifiers can play a big role. Inflammation is thought as one of the big factors in the pathophysiology and the pathogenesis of a myocardial infarction, and these risk enhancers, certainly a lot of them seem to work through these potential pathways of inflammation and things like that, causing that plaque destabilization and rupture leading to a myocardial infarction. So, one important thing, you've already talked about this, that the fact that having a negative stress test does not mean you cannot get a heart attack. I think this is a very important point, and I think it's worth it to again emphasize that. In fact, so much so that before I send any of my patients for a stress test, or if I'm supervising a dobutamine stress test when I do the consent process and I talk to the patient about the test, I tell them one thing very clearly. A stress test is meant to detect a, a stenosis, which is 50 or 70% or greater, and that it does accurately with sensitivities, as you guys talked about, 80-90% or so. So the thing is, majority of the myocardial infarctions, more than 50% of them are going to happen from plaque ruptures of plaques which are less than 50%. So that stress test never had a chance of detecting that plaque that was going to rupture. I talk to my patient about this and tell them that, remember, even if you have a negative stress test, even the next day, if you have symptoms of chest pain or something that's concerning that's not getting better, it could still be a heart attack, so you need to call 911 and come in. So in that way, I'm glad in our patient, first up, the symptom of chest pain was respected and he had an evaluation with a stress test when they thought that it may, it potentially could be coronary when he had this e-value diagnosis. And in addition to that, that the patient respected the symptoms and came in. Although it seems that when he came in, he had Q waves in his EKG, so perhaps he manifested a little bit later. But this is the reason why I tell all my patients when I order a stress test or when I'm again supervising a stress test, that if you have symptoms despite a negative stress test, make sure that you go in and come back to the emergency room and this is going to be important. Now, the other thing that useful analogy, uh, which Dr. Ballantyne, our chief, has used very often in clinic when I've trained with him, is for a patient to understand is that, remember, even an angiogram or a CTA or any of these things are luminograms, right? The action is actually happening in the vessel wall, which is where the plaque destabilization and plaque development is going on. So the analogy uses is, think about this as your vessel as a donut or a bagel, 
The action is not in the donut hole, but in the donut wall. So that's what we all are interested in, right? So this is where the whole pathophysiology and the pathobiology is going on. That's where you can have plaque destabilization and rupture. And these things such as inflammation can easily trigger those things. And this is something to explain to your patient why if the neg a stress test could be negative and they could still have a myocardial infarction within a week or two. So these are important caveats or points to discuss with your patient on that. Now, the next interesting aspect on this patient was the fact that he had e-valley or vaping-associated lung injury. Now, clearly, this is thought of as some form of an inflammatory mechanism. So clearly, that might be something that's associated with that. Now, vaping and cardiovascular disease, as discussed, has uh, there's been some studies that have you know, shown some association that this is an evolving space. Remember, when vaping and e-cigarettes and all were brought in, they said, oh, it's a safer alternative. This is like saying uh, lower fat in advertising chips and things like that, right? So it's not that it's no fat, it's lower. So if it was X percent and it's just X minus 1%, it's still lower fat. That's the same thing you have to think of in these kind of situations when we, first off, we don't even know if it's safer or not. There are some studies that say maybe endothelial dysfunction is not as prevalent with uh, e-cigarettes and vaping compared to regular cigarettes. But again, there are other studies that say they're equivalent. So this is a developing uh, uh, space. Now, clearly though, e-cigarettes have been associated or have been associated with a higher risk of myocardial infarction and CHD. And so we should make it an important thing that we not only ask about cigarette smoking, but also ask about e-cigarettes because some patients think, think if they're smoking e-cigarettes, they're not smoking anymore. So this is something that we should start getting ourselves attuned to when, when we get our history and uh, uh, take care of our patients. Now, that being said, in this situation, the e-valley potentially could have caused inflammation and potentially thing as you as you guys very nicely discussed. But remember, I haven't seen too many cases described that after having e-valley, a patient presenting with myocardial infarction. Now, e-valley and its association with death and all of that have been described. So I think it's worth a, a, a closer look at literature and perhaps you guys writing this case up because I think it's important to know that this could you know be a trigger for a potential myocardial infarction in that way this case has been a really fascinating case that you guys described. Now finally the workup we talked about other things to look for we talked about the lipoprotein delay we talked about looking for risk enhancers we talked about all of those things. In addition, I think over time, it'll be important to check and make sure there's no inflammation checking an HSCRP, taking a look at that. It'll be a very interesting thing. Now, you guys talked about the importance of echocardiography, and I just want to add a few points to that echocardiography discussion that you had. So one thing is, remember, a good 2D image is going to be very important when you're evaluating for uh, LV thrombus. A 2D image sometimes has more value than even contrast. The reason to use contrast is to make sure that we don't foreshorten the image in, uh, images and as a result exclude the LV apex, which is where most of these clots are going to happen. If you get a good 2D look at the true LV apex, you should be able to see uh, thrombus with that. And obviously the contrast gives you an additional information as far as finding out uh, echo density. But a good 2D image is going to be very critical in, in this evaluation. Now, not only that, remember that you have talked about potential embolic manifestation, right? So that's the other place where the echocardiogram can help. What if there was a fibroelastoma that embolized? Remember, you talked about on your labs that the white count was 22,000. What if the patient had endocarditis and it was an actually an endocarditis or a vegetation that embolized? So these are all important reasons why to get the echocardiogram in addition to the usual understanding what the ejection fraction is, understanding its risk for future risk for sudden cardiac death or evaluating the clots. So it's important to get a good comprehensive transfer acid echocardiogram in our patients with an MI and especially in such a patient who was young and ended up having an event. 
So overall, this was a fascinating case. Now, as far as the, the management and the plan of treatment goes, it was very interesting. One, one point of interest actually that I wanted to make is remember that anti-inflammatories there's been a big focus on that. There have been a couple of nice studies that have come up, uh, come about about colchicine use and decreasing myocardial infarction events. So this is something that will be an interesting space. So for example, a patient such as this, if there, we thought this was an inflammation-based plaque rupture, are these the patients that we should be a little bit more aggressive with medications such as colchicine? So these are obviously not yet there, but in our future, when we see this patient in our clinic, we should be thinking about these strategies, whether this is something that's of benefit for him. Now, the other important thing is aspirin and statin use, we've prescribed it to the patient. But remember, Dr. Mata, Dhruv Mata, we talked about his data from the vital registry. He's shown that younger individuals, individuals with premature coronary artery disease are less likely to be compliant to these medications. They are less likely to be on aspirin or a statin. So it's very important for us to take the time and discuss with the patient the pathophysiology of an MI and why and what what percentage of risk reduction they can get from this and what happens if they don't take these medications. So a younger patient, sometimes they do feel that they're unbeatable. So spending that extra time and discussing with them the importance of medication adherence is something that we should do. Finally, we should make an opp- take this opportunity and also make sure that he's hooked up with smoking cessation programs, help him quit smoking, or if he's quit smoking, make sure that he does not relapse. Remember, these things over time will change. So that's why it's very important to follow him up and you know take care of him in our clinics and make sure that we emphasize these things with every visit. So again, this was a fascinating case. There were a lot of uh, learning points and I, it's an important space that we're starting to learn more and more. Now, with emerging data on things like genomics, metabolomics, and proteomics, which I know, Elisa, you've been working on and some research on that, I think this is a fascinating uh, uh, thing as we move forward in our understanding of myocardial infarction and young MI and what we can do to alter the course or, or prevent these. To me, prevention has always been a fascinating field because this is a process that takes a lifetime to build, and so we have a long time to work on that. But remember, it's very difficult to convince our patients who feel great that they have to do A, B, or C to prevent a potential event that may or may not happen 10, 20, 15, 20 years ago from now. So it's an important space. It's important that we continue our work, and I'm glad, so glad that you guys are all working on these aspects of it. And I'm sure that our patients are going to benefit from the work that you guys are doing right now in the future. Thank you so much for having me, giving me some time to discuss this. I enjoyed discussing this case. More more than that, I enjoyed hearing your discussion. Thank you very much. And now a message to the applicant from Dr. Arunima Mishra, who is one of the APDs of our program and one of the non-invasive cardiologists at the VA. Hi, I'm Arunima Mistra, an APD at the Baylor College of Medicine Cardiology Fellowship Program in Houston, Texas. First of all, I want to thank the fellows for doing such a fine job in presenting the vaping-related STEMI. He happens to be one of my clinic patients and is doing great. He gave up both smoking and vaping and asked me why no one told him that vaping could cause a heart attack. I told him that we didn't know. In fact, only time and further study will tell us if and how vaping can cause STEMIs or other cardiovascular complications. Now let's talk about Houston. I've been in Houston almost my entire life. They call it H-Town or the Bio City because we have so many bios. It's the fourth largest city in the nation. It's also the most ethnically diverse metropolitan area in the entire United States. With that diversity comes incredible food, culture, music, and lots of festivals to enjoy. We have an awesome museum district as well as huge park downtown called Discovery Green. 
Houston also has a lot of trails to walk, jog, or bike on. And you can even go canoeing in the bayous. Houston also happens to be the home of NASA Mission Control, as well as many sports teams, including basketball, football, baseball, soccer, rugby, and we even have horse racing. Oh, and I forgot to mention the rodeo. We have the largest rodeo. So put on your boots and let's go rodeo. You can also eat lots of fried food at the rodeo, including fried Twinkies and Oreos, if that's your thing. Just south of downtown, there's the Texas Medical Center. And here we have the Baylor College of Medicine. Baylor College of Medicine was started way back in 1900 by a group of dedicated physicians in Dallas. Later, it was affiliated with the Baylor University of Waco, which can be really confusing. But we became independent many years ago and were called the Baylor College of Medicine. We've been there ever since. We're also the home of the incredible Michael E. DeBakey, the cardiovascular surgeon who pioneered aortic aneurysm surgery and was the first one to do coronary artery bypass graft surgery successfully in the entire world. So when you come to Baylor as a fellow, you'll be coming to a long history of tradition in medicine and excellence. We have three affiliated hospitals, including the Houston VA, the Bentop Hospital, which is the county hospital, as well as Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center. All of these hospitals provide you a rich experience in diverse patient pathology as well as patients themselves. We have patients from all over the world seen at Bentob. At Bentob, you'll see pathologies like rheumatic heart disease and mitral stenosis that you think that that's commonly seen everywhere. You'll also see congenital heart disease that was fixed a long time ago and the patient was lost to follow-up or was never fixed and now they're presenting as an adult with advanced congenital heart disease that's uncorrected. We're also home to the VA where I work. The VA is one of the largest in the U.S. and takes care of a lot of veterans and we provide state-of-the-art cardiovascular care. We're one of the premier centers for cardiology amongst all of the VAs. We offer TAVR as well as soon-to-come mitral clip. We're also developing an LVAD transplant program soon to come. As general cardiology fellows, you get to experience all the interventions, uh, state-of-the-art EP, as well as imaging. And as you heard from our fellows, we do everything from prevention to advanced heart failure. We offer a rich clinical experience as well as great mentoring from faculty and the ability to partake and participate in cardiology societies at a national level with fellows in training, uh, sitting on councils and committees. We also take pride in our diversity and the multiple women in our faculty here at Baylor College of Medicine Cardiology. The best part of Baylor Cardiology Fellowship is the family feel among the fellows as well as the faculty. It's really a very friendly program in a friendly city. So please come take a look at Baylor College of Medicine Cardiology Fellowship in Houston, Texas. We'll be glad you came. Thank you. Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the CardioNerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the CardioNerds newsletter. 
You can join the email list using a link in the episode description as well as from our website, www.cardinerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Rizzo for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Doss, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Burgis are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split.